Throughout scripture, one of the foundational commands to God's people is to be set apart, to be different. The Israelites were commanded not to eat like, dress like, or worship like their pagan neighbors. In Jesus' day, famous prophets and protectors of the law followed this command in different ways. Since the church's beginning, Christians have lived out this command by physically fleeing to the desert, by denying themselves some of the most basic comforts, and by standing up against persistent worldliness in the Holy Roman Empire. In the 17th century, the Puritans fled the Church of England and birthed the Church in America. In the 20th century, the Jesus people rebelled against the formal church structure in America. But at what point does our quest to be holy become nothing more than a retreat from those we're called to reach? Have some of our attempts to be faithful only resulted in another form of unfaithfulness? After all, Jesus called us light, salt, witnesses. There has never been a time to retreat. We have always been called to engage. The Bible describes it as being in the world, but not of the world. And so we're not going to build walls around here. We're not going to put a moat uh, to, defend, to defend ourselves and defend off uh, cultural problems. Uh, but instead, we're going to actively recognize that not only are we not going to retreat, but we're going to advance. We are going to engage. And I love to be reminded that that engagement, you and I, in culture, in the lives around us, can seem unbelievably ordinary. One of the ways in which my wife and I experienced this was just by having kids and by raising them and by having them involved in just normal activities. But you gotta be careful about this because sometimes it can look like something that's going on around you is profoundly spiritual and Christian and it might not be as much as you think. Boy Scouts of America. I remember each of my boys thought at one particular point in their lives, I would like to go to Boy Scouts. I would love to be a part of that group. And at first, I wasn't one myself, but at first I thought, okay, this, this should sound like fun. To me, it just seemed like a competition to see who could get the most badges fastest, right? So I thought, oh, as a dad, I can help you with this. And then we have the go-kart thing. We could win one of those. I mean, that, that sounds like enjoyable, but I remember when I was walking through the different badges that they could, that they could win, that they could earn, um, one of the ones that you can earn, and I think my, my, well, my first son was the only one that stayed long enough to get this one, um, God and Country. Wow, Christian education in the Boy Scouts of America. That's awesome. So when I began to talk about what they needed to do, there was a big difference, by the way, between teaching my son to carry a cross or to teach my son how to earn a badge. You know there's a difference, right? Carrying crosses really isn't what the Boy Scouts of America were all about. They weren't trying to teach my son about how to live a life sacrificially for the glory of God, for the benefit of others, and for his deepest joy. They're not trying to teach him how to, to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and enjoy him forever. They actually give you a list. Uh, you don't have to actually be a Christian to learn your, learn your God and country badge. It's not Yahweh and country. It's just God and country. I don't even know, does it make a difference? Uh, you can be Muslim, you can be Jewish, you can be the Baha'i faith. Really, what they want you to understand is that it's more about the religious instruction that matters than any particular religious instruction. 
I'm not taking a shot at the Boy Scouts of America. Because the truth is, my wife and I never felt it was their responsibility to teach our kids spiritually anyway. We recognized that God had given that primary responsibility to us and that we were part of a Christian community that would help us do that. But it was one of those times when I realized, wow, um, you can actually have a lot of the trappings of spirituality of even God and country and it not be the same thing as Jesus Christ and him crucified. So cultural engagement can actually look like a lot of different things, recognizing it is absolutely important that we get involved in it. I love this reminder that I had a text to me earlier today, uh, knowing that we were going to be dealing with this question about how do we not retreat, how do we stay engaged in our culture, how do we uh, interact, how do we become salt and light, how do we help people understand not just what we believe, but how do we help people believe what we believe? How do we give witness to what God has called us to? And I love to be reminded of this simple fact that whenever there is tension, whenever there is cultural disagreement, um, it is easy for anybody to get angry. It's easy to give in and it's easy to get angry. And so here was the quote that somebody texted me earlier today, it is always easier to be enraged than engaged. It really is, isn't it? It's easier to get all upset about it than it actually is to say, okay, what are we going to do about it? It's easier to post than it actually is to have a real conversation with somebody where instead of me just kind of giving you like a blurb on my thoughts and kind of take a shot over the internet, to actually sit down to, um, to know that person and to know that person well and to realize, yes, um, there is something that we need to talk about. And you and I do have not just different values, but a completely different way of looking at life. I know this word is kind of, you know, one of those hot topic words, and we don't want to, I don't want to kind of create a problem that doesn't already exist, but I think it's good for us to ask this question. I've heard this used whenever we're dealing with culture. Is there actually like a war on? Are we at war? Like war sounds severe. It sounds like somebody's got to be picketing as to whether or not war is okay. Let's try peace. But it's good for us to recognize two things. Number one, yes, we are at war. There are differences of opinion that matter. There are ways of looking at life that foundationally matter. But although that word war brings images of extreme anger and frustration, that you and I can recognize that this cultural battle that we're in is absolutely nothing new. That the Bible describes this cultural war in a number of different ways, but primarily what it helps us see, and I'm going to go to the Apostle Paul's writing um, to the church at Ephesus. He says this. He says, listen, yes, we're at war. I want you to put on the full armor of God. I want you to be prepared for this battle. But then he says this. But this war that we're engaged in is not a war against flesh and blood. And that's good to remember. Like, it's not a war against flesh and blood. That's why Jesus could even say to Pilate, when Pilate said, do you realize who I am? Do you know the power that I can yield? Do you realize? And Jesus says, hey, listen, first of all, <laughs> you have nothing that God hasn't given you. And second of all, like, my kingdom is not of this world. So yes, it's a war, but it actually is a spiritual war. It's a war that's not won with, with guns or picketing. 
It's a war that is actually engaged spiritually with, with prayer and with the power of the Holy Spirit and with a faithful witness that you and I share about who God is and who people are and the amazing difference between the two in God's plan of salvation and who Jesus Christ is. It is fundamentally different than you and I. You want to do this? It's different than you and I stockpiling weapons. Well, we'll show them. It, it actually, and, I, and listen, I'm, I'm not against any level of political engagement. If that's where you feel led to either be on the front lines or be supportive of, I think that is part of our responsibility in our culture. But as I'll talk about next week when we get into that, how do we trust God in the middle of this? But that's almost the only way that we know how to fight this war. And I like to be reminded, oh, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. There's really nothing new here. It began in a garden when the enemy deceived Adam and Eve. It, it continued all, all throughout history. When, when, when people, cultures were, were differing and prophets would come up and they would speak. And in the end, they would lean into the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the consistency of God. And instead of trying to take up arms and win battles... The real change that happens is when God is the one who is using his people to actively engage and transform culture from that position, not one of power and prominence, but, but one of, this is where most Christians throughout history have actually done some of the most amazing work, we'll talk about this next week, is, but from the margins of society. So yes, we're at war. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to inform you. But that war that we have is not a war against flesh and blood, but a war against principalities and power. Uh, war is a, kind of an idea that helps us understand that yes, there are competing issues that are taking place. The other thing it helps me recognize is this, is although we might actually talk about this being a societal issue and talk about the fabric of society the truth is, it's the, the, the battleground is like a dining room table. Your dining room table. It's like my sofa. This battle is, is waged like in our elementary schools and our university campuses. Like it, it's our workplaces. Like this is where this war actually takes place. If you think about it, it's in the ordinary, everyday context that all of us have. And, and therefore, you and I, whether we want to admit it or not, I guess at some level we have to be engaged. We have to be engaged in our conversation. Our faith has to come to light. We have to be actively seeking not just how to win this battle, but how do I remain faithful to God in these trying times? I, I need to remind us that what we're not talking about here, what we're not talking about here is somehow returning to like 40 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. It's not how do we go back in time and reclaim something that is long gone and oh, don't you miss the good old days. Every week I've said that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. I, I think as a good reminder, I want you to just kind of go back in your mind. You, you might know a little bit about this time, although very not even I was alive during this time, but in the, in the 40s and 50s, which is in a lot of Americans' mind, um, yes, some of you were alive, so... You won't be alive much longer, but anyway, back in the 40s and 50s. So those people who were alive during that time period, we need some light humor, okay? I'm, 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 I'm trying my best up here. Okay, so um, as back in that 40s and 50s, let's think about that culture. And we go, yeah, wasn't that, that was a good time. The kids could play in the street. I mean, we kind of knew what was going on around it. And I just want to take one slice. 
one slice of American culture and say, but wait a second here. Like, during that time, wasn't there, like, a lot of what, and this word you might not know is becoming more and more popular. It was on the top 13 words that came out a few years ago. Wasn't that also a time where there was misogyny readily accepted, which is hatred of women? Yeah. Like, in the church. And wasn't that a time where, like, sexual harassment was happening and everybody was told just to keep it quiet, like that's just kind of how it is? And I don't know how much, I've gone back and I've listened to sermons in the 40s and 50s and the church in conservative America was not preaching against hatred of women. They were not preaching against harassment and how that's completely inappropriate. So, so listen, yes, it was, it was good and your kids could play in the street. But there was still a lot of brokenness. There was still like inequality in the boardroom. There was all these different things. And hear me, I'm not trying to pick that one subject. I just want you to realize how complicated it is and how foolish it would be for us as followers of Jesus Christ to think somehow if we could just get on the other side in the past of the sexual revolution, then what we get is Mayberry back. Mayberry, by the way, is this kind of fictitious place. Um, for those of you, not for the ones who are laughing that were born back in the 20s, but for the, for the, for the ones. Um, so listen, the, the point is, is that we're not trying to go back to that, which is what most people do. What most people want to go back to is that time. And I want you to realize, no, they, were, they had their own problems. They had their own struggles. And I really think it's even good for us not to just poke shots at, but then to even realize, so then we have our problems. I mean, tell me you're, you're smart enough to figure out that they were the ones that were messed up. I mean, I, 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 first service, I, I mentioned what was going on in the 50s and misogyny and unequal pay and all that. Amen. Amen. Right? But then I start talking about a woman's right to choose. Well, hey, hey, hey. No, we, 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 we've arrived at that decision out of becoming advanced. And hey, this is the way my body is. Or this is the way my mind is and my body needs to match my body. Now that's insightful. Like you don't, you don't think that you and I are going to have to answer for some of the decisions that we've made? You think that was only in the 50s? So listen, I have no problem taking shots back there. What makes me uncomfortable is the fact that you and I will give an answer for the cultural battles that we don't fight. That we just decide to embrace and accept. But the fact that you and I, because when you base your marriage on absolute love and enjoyment of one another, and then if that doesn't work out, well, then we'll just start over again. Like somehow there won't be judgment on that. No, there will be. We have our own struggles in this generation, and that's why I love going back and realizing that every culture has its own cultural struggle, and what I want to ask us is, are we going to be faithful to what we've been given? Are you and I going to respond? Are we going to actively engage? Because I would say, sure, there is a cultural war, but in the past, a lot of that cultural war, literally, like, nobody stood up and fought against it. Like, it, it, it went on way too long because the conversations that they didn't want to have. I don't want to have a conversation, Alabama, in the 1940s, about whether or not skin color should dictate. So good old church folk 
just as racist as all get out, think somehow they're pleasing Jesus with their worship. And they will give account for their sin. And the same thing is true, true for us. You and I need to go back, as we talked last week, grounded in God's word, dealing with the painful truth that, that yes, we are broken, but we are not alone. And God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he is asking us to engage. Don't run, don't retreat, don't just sit on the sidelines and complain. Get in there. Be salt and light. Fight the way you're supposed to fight. Stand up for what you're supposed to stand up for. Now, it's, it, it, it's, it gets complicated, and part of it is because when we're trying to go back and to figure out, okay, so what are we really supposed to fight against? Sometimes we'll even grab Bible verses and misuse them. A number of years ago, I had a chance to, uh, to be involved every year in May. They have this, uh, this prayer time, this National Day of Prayer. I love the idea of us praying, of us praying as a nation. I have no, no problem with any of that. And that particular year, um, the national organization had taken 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, a verse that you probably know. And if my people who are called by my, by my name will humble themselves, then I will heal their land. And what's fascinating is, is that a group of Christian people um, in America particularly uh, take that verse out of context to use it for their own Religious, political, cultural end. I remember being asked to be involved in this, and at every meeting I wanted to just stand up and say, does everybody know the verse doesn't mean that? Like, does anybody know that was actually written to Jewish people who've been dead for a long time? Like, does anybody know that that was actually a covenantal promise made at Mount Sinai? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't repent, and I'm not saying that God won't, but people are using that like it was written just for them. God, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, here you go. Got it. No, 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 don't, don't say that. Don't, don't bring that up. Listen, I, I, I love being involved and doing what I could do and praying, and I do believe there is every group, every individual, every society needs to plead to God for his forgiveness. Not because he is unwilling, but because that's just a good posture for broken, sinful people to be in. And I do believe that God's healing is coming. I just don't believe in misusing Bible verses to win my case. So it's hard, isn't it? How do we actively engage? And, and who, what am I trying to, and wh where are we going? And we're not going back in time. That's not our particular goal. What we are to be is engaged missionally, like purposefully. That's why I love for moms and dads to think about like the dining room table. I want you to actually think about the kitchen table. I want you to think about in front of the television set or maybe turn it off occasionally. I want you to think about conversations that happen, uh, college students in the classroom, in the dorm room, in the fraternity, in the sorority. I want you to think about conversations that you have in the dugout about life and about what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. See, to be engaged missionally everywhere that we are in the ordinary, everyday aspects of life is what God has called us to be. Not observers, not caught up in the swayers, but actually engaged. Standing up and explaining, I am a follower, but not of culture, but of Jesus Christ. We, we just get trapped 
in thinking that somehow what we are supposed to do is help people kind of clean up the outside. So that becomes the engagement. How, how do we help people become sexually pure? How do, how do we help people become, make sure they have sex with the right gender? How, how do we make people like accept their own gender? And we, we kind of get stuck at that level of, of, of up here, which by the way, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but trying to deal with that all the time and arguing over that all the time, I've, I've just found to be rather futile. It reminds me a lot of a conversation I had with a dear woman, and an, oh, I was in a, uh, t- when I was in graduate school, I was in this tiny little church in Illinois. Uh, the city was like 250 people. And there was this great lady in our church named Wanda, who had been part of that church ever since it was, uh, it, it was started. And, and Wanda's hands were all uh, kind of bent out of shape because of arthritis, but she still played the piano every Sunday. And she would play, and I would lead songs, and it was really kind of actually a fun time, and um, everybody in town knows everybody else, and I've got, um, I've got some, uh, some strong convictions about who I will and who I will not marry, and I'm not talking about like my wife, I've got, I've got convictions there too, but I'm talking about as a pastor, okay? I'm done getting married, by the way, unless something happens to her, and then we'll t- we got a plan for that too, but um, <laughs> so does she, so does she, but I will marry believers with, to believers and I'll even, right now, I don't know if this may change, but I'll marry unbelievers to unbelievers. I just won't jump the divide because the Bible says not to. So I'll marry believers to believers, unbelievers to unbelievers. I'm just not jumping over that, okay? Travis and Amanda were, were unbelievers. And, and I don't know if it was the fact that I was, you know, in my 20s and so I was young, kind of like them, but they wanted to meet with me and I, I said, this will be a great opportunity for me to do their premarital counseling um, to help them understand. I'll have a chance to actually share the gospel with them and how God intended their marriage to be and how to love one another and live sacrificially for each other. Don't know if they'll listen. Don't even know as if unbelievers that really even get them what I'm saying, but they'll be kind. And I remember them kind of nodding. Oh yeah, that's right. I'll love her like I love myself or whatever, right? And the marriage lasted a year, by the way. So, I mean, they were really committed. So, one of the things that I find interesting, though, is that church folk in that town were still kind of wrapped up in kind of the outside issues. They were involved in being engaged on don't do bad things instead of give your life to Jesus Christ. In the end, they were really excited about a badge that said God and country. They just didn't want to have to learn about how to carry a cross. See, that's, that's dangerous for us. My biggest concern is that actually, actually, probably it is, my biggest concern with you is that somehow you'll believe that going through the motions up at this level that you actually have peace with Jesus instead of like trusting him with your sin. That you're using Jesus to get something else, even temporary peace so you can go on about your day, feel good about it, instead of truly living in response to who he is and what he has done for you through his death on the cross. Back to Wanda. So here's Wanda. And, and, and Wanda is down at the pop and shop and she catches Travis buying beer. So she sees me at church and, hey, Jim, we need to talk. And Wanda, what's wrong? Could tell she was not, she wasn't angry. She was genuinely concerned for this young man who occasionally bought beer. I'm going to assume to great excess at times, but she didn't know that. She wasn't mad that he bought five cases of beer. She was just mad that he bought beer, and she wanted me. I know you're meeting with him. You need to talk to him about his beer. I looked at her, and I said, listen, Wanda, you do know that Travis is going to hell, right? <laughs> okay, Wanda, 
you, you do know that there is a hell. Well, yes. You do know that people go to hell not because they drink beer, but because they don't know Jesus. Well, yes. And you do know that Travis doesn't know Jesus, like isn't following Jesus. Well, yes. Okay, wait a second, wait a second. So Wanda, you know that people who don't know Jesus go to hell. You know that Travis is one of those people and you never connected the dots? And we never do. Ah, not never. We really struggle to connect those dots, don't we? Three or four years ago, my grandmother was about 98 years old and was kind of near the end of her life. And I made a comment. I remember we were in a series on 2 Corinthians and I made a comment about my grandma going to hell. 98 years, never wanted to follow Jesus Christ, never wanted to have any kind of relationship with him whatsoever. Her, her motto was, hey, listen, like God knows I've been a great person and you know what? If he doesn't want me, then I don't want him. Listen, she baked good cookies. She was as sweet as all get up. She smiled at me and told me that she loved me, gave me $5 every year on my birthday. It was a big deal when I was three. It was kind of a ripoff when I was 18. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? Let's be honest. But I made that comment about my grandma going to hell, and I wasn't saying it flippantly. I'm not, it's not a joke. It's very serious. I called my mom and said, hey, by the way, I know you listen to my sermons four or five weeks out. I just want you to know I was telling the congregation about how grandma's going to hell. You might want to buckle up for that one. My mom said to me, I know, I know, she got it. See, like, so the, the engagement that we're in is not beer, and it's not even like sex. It's fundamentally different. And that's why we're going to go back to the words, of, that's why being grounded in Jesus and being grounded in everything that he taught is what we're grounded in. Therefore, missionally, what I'm about is not societal transformation, but actually spiritual transformation, life transformation, conversion, giving ourselves completely over to who Jesus Christ is. That is the war that we are in. That is the battle that we are facing. That is why I pray. That is why I plead with people not to not drink beer. Not to not look at porn, not to not leave their wife, not to not whatever. That's not the issue. The issue is, and I love this, is that the more that I make much of Jesus and the more that you and I follow Jesus, I fundamentally believe that we'll still have conversations about sex and beer. We'll still have those conversations, but instead of it being social transformation without the heart, it literally is societal transformation because you and I are fundamentally different people. What we live for, our hopes and our dreams, everything from what we do on Sunday to our retirement planning is fundamentally influenced by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ calls us he, into this mission, and I'm going to give you this verse again. I'm going to keep giving it to you unapologetically over and over and over again. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus Christ, as he is leaving the disciples, he is telling them, now here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to be involved. He didn't say, run for your lives, they're coming for you. He didn't say, listen, it's going to be a mess and all I need you to do is hold on. He said, actually, you might want to grab some supplies because I'm sending you out. We are going to be actively engaging everything. 
We're going to have marriages and families and cities that are going to be transformed, and it's going to be profound and difficult, but we're moving in that direction. Wherever we are, we are God-centered, God-focused, and he tells them, all authority, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we do this under the authority of Jesus Christ. So it's not... And Jim's really, really upset about whether it's their sexual orientation or their gender identification or their beer. Jim's really upset about that, and he can't handle the fact that other people want to live a life different. No, it's that God has already spoken about who we are, particularly as followers of Jesus Christ. And then he's saying, and I want you to share those beliefs about who Jesus Christ is and then the overflow of that. And one of the reasons why I, I, I would argue, hopefully the only reason why I have boldness is because I think Jesus Christ has already spoken. Like, I'm not trying to just make this up. Like, the reason why I get really passionate and the reason why I can come across as being really, really strong about this and the parts where I feel most passionate and most firm are the places where Jesus Christ himself has already spoken. It's not my personality, well, it might be my personality too, but it's, it's not a personality issue. It is the clarity of Jesus Christ, and he is given authority. Verse 19, go therefore, and here's the imperative, make disciples. Not get people to drink beer responsibly, make sure that men make love to women and women make love to men. Not make sure that nobody changes their gender. Not make sure abortion never happens. Like, make sure divorce stops. Make sure that teenage pregnancy ends. Make sure that nobody punches anybody. Like, those aren't the focus. The focus is what? We are called to go and make disciples. And then from the making disciples piece, and notice how this continues, make disciples, I love this, of all nations. So it's not even just about preserving our own culture because I could be an African three years. It's wherever I am of all nations, baptizing them, a symbol of uniting Christ and being, in, being dead, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe or obey everything that I have commanded you. And you can do this because you're not alone because I am with you always to the very ends of the age. When society and you are getting along good, I'm with you and therefore I will keep you grounded so you don't get caught up in the prosperity gospel and um, the health and wealth gospel that you won't get caught up in forgotten country badges. And then when society is against you, you won't get caught up and afraid and hunker down and retreat and run for your lives and just get mad and all you know how to do is picket and Facebook like crazy. But you're actually engaging in society. Why? Because Jesus Christ is with us. Giving us the power and the knowledge to do what? To make disciples. Not have opinions and comments, but to make disciples. Moms and dads, it is making disciples of your children. It's not about teaching them to be good. It's teaching them to follow Jesus Christ. And listen, as a parent, I have dealt with my children's sin. And it hurts. It hurts deeply. And I remember thinking to myself, how do I make sure they don't do this again? And I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with, uh, how can I? Maybe I've been too loose, or maybe I've been too strict, and we're going back and forth. And whatever that might be, and sometimes I'm too strict, and sometimes I was too loose. But whatever that might be, the thing that scared me the most was I couldn't control them. 
And what I couldn't control was not their actions. I really couldn't control their heart. And it's painful. For those of you that don't have kids, you have no idea what it's like when you look at your child and you realize, wow, like you are making choices that are just going to wreak havoc on your eternal destiny. You're choosing a lifestyle apart from Jesus Christ, and I can't live that life for you. And maybe it's a good reminder. Because my job isn't to convert people. That whole idea of making disciples really assumes at its very core that God is the one that changes the heart. And then what do we do? We teach them what following Jesus Christ looks like. So your, your friends that you know that do not know Christ, your job isn't to convert them. You actually can't convert somebody. That literally would be brainwashing. You can't convert them. But you know what you can do? You can bear witness to the truth about who Jesus Christ. Watch him convert them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you can teach them what it looks like. That's why your witness does matter. That's why your sexual ethic does matter. That's why your view of life does matter. That's why all of those, how you save for retirement does matter. How you treat your wife does matter. How you date does matter. How you engage in culture in every way. All of those things do matter. But you can just get a lot of that value stuff right. And spend eternity in hell. So Jesus Christ calls us to actively engage society at the make disciples, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded level. It's uh, the college that I went to and I actually taught at when I first went there in the 80s. Um, they, had, they had rules that I thought were a little weird, especially coming from Canada. Um, they, you, your hair could only be a certain length. Um, you couldn't have any facial hair. Couldn't have a beard, couldn't have a mustache. I, I remember going there thinking... Okay, that's weird. Um, and then I heard about this thing called the Bible Belt. I'd never heard about it. Okay, growing up in Canada, we used to dream about beautiful, godly places like Portland and Seattle. Um, New York City was a real godly place. And so we would, oh, wow, wouldn't that be nice to be in New York where everyone's a Christian? So that's what we felt like in Canada. And so all of a sudden, I'm in the Bible Belt. And it, it truly was a bit of a cultural shift for me. And I didn't complain. I mean, I, I don't care. You want me to have facial hair? Don't want me to have, I mean, those things didn't matter. I, I loved being reminded, though. I asked, well, why do you do that? Well, like facial hair was like a sign of that long hair look, that beard look, sign of rebellion. Okay, fine. I remember going, is it still a sign of rebellion? Because, you know, now we've got like the duck hunter people or whatever. They all look like, like it seems like you have to be, have a beard. And if you're a Christian, don't you guys right now, aren't you feeling like, that no-shave November is the only way you can be a Christian nowadays, right? You got to grow these. So these are cultural expressions. And how do we make sure that we focus on the heart? Paul puts it this way, and I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul does some great explanation of what culture enga cultural engagement ultimately looks like and how we really win the battle by focusing on the heart and by getting to the very core of what Christianity is all about. Verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 5 says this, for if we are beside ourselves, or if we're like sounding crazy to you, he's saying this to a church that's actually pretty messed up morally. If we are beside ourselves, outside of ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, if we're making sense to you, then that is for you. But the love of Christ is what compels or controls us. 
because we have concluded this. Now notice how this gets into some deep theology. Here's what we believe. That one has died for all, and therefore all have died. Jesus died for us. Therefore, if you are a follower of Jesus, this, this answers so many questions. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're dead. Like you're dead. That's what that baptism thing that we just saw a little while ago, she's dead. She's got a new life to live. Imagine the question about how we should live our lives. And okay, wait, 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 wait. Before we talk about what you want to do with your body and whether or not you have the right to do with your body, I first want you to just say this. I am dead. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. I'm just going to use my body that would glorify him because he is now living in me. Do you realize how many conversations just quickly get quiet? Don't they? They quickly get quiet. And by the way, that answers a 16-year-old who wants to have sex with his girlfriend. And it also answers a 42-year-old who won't have sex with her husband. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Your body isn't yours. So who you are and how you're dressed and your expressions are not based on what you want and your own um, understanding and your own realization, but it is based on Christ. This would answer so many of our struggles and difficulties. My body is not my own. I'm dead, and I'm living for Jesus Christ. So he says what? We've concluded this, that since one has died, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live no longer live for themselves. See, that's the part that nobody wants to talk about. It literally, at that point, most of us go, can't we go back and talk about beer? Right? Let's be honest. That one hits me. That's why in the end, I, it would be easier for us to just talk about the superficial issues. Because none of us get a pass. It's what I love. Sam Alberry, he's a pastor in, um, uh, in England who will tell you that he deals with same-sex attraction. He wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? Great book, by the way. And Sam Alberry gets really offended when Christian people come up to him and say, oh, it must be so hard for you to be a Christian and suffer through same-sex attraction. To which Sam points out, Jesus Christ asks no more of me than anybody else. We are all called to deny ourselves, to daily pick up our cross and follow him. I don't have it any harder or any easier than anybody else. Do you understand that? We are all called to die to ourselves in the same way. It is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. He goes on and says in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh or in a fleshly way. Even though we once regarded Christ in the flesh, meaning that he's just a man, we now regard him this way no longer. What Apostle Paul is saying is that when we think about the world, we're not, we're, 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 well, let me put it this way, we are kingdom first people, not kingdom only people, which means this, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, everything goes through the filter of God's kingdom and God's rule in the earth, but we don't do it in a retreat mentality, Katie bar the door, okay? We actually do it in engagement mentality. So it's not only about the kingdom, meaning don't want them to come in. 
It's about the kingdom being first in our lives so that we can actively engage people, have tough conversations, real conversations, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, but don't sin with those who sin, but actively show them what a counter way of living looks like at every level. How do Christian people handle retirement? How do Christian people handle a wife or a husband who's had an affair? There's a Christian way to handle that and a non-Christian way to handle that. How, how, how do we raise our children? How do we not get wrapped up in the sports culture around us? How, how do we, I mean, literally think about all the different ways and levels that you and I can actively follow Jesus Christ in the everyday, ordinary examples and literally be salt and light. You may never have to, God may want you to, but you may never have to run for political office. You may never have to like march with a sign. And yet wherever you go, you are actively engaged in Christian uh, obedience to Jesus Christ. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, and the new has come, and all of this is from God who through Christ has reconciled himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was in, uh, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins or trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See, engagement in our culture isn't just about social justice. It's helping people have a right relationship with God, and then from that, having a natural and normal and right relationship with people around us. Christians should be the best at understanding about racial reconciliation and gender reconciliation and all of those things. Why? Because we know what true reconciliation with the king of the universe is really all about. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is now making his appeal through us and now we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is our message. Be reconciled to God, find peace with God, experience God's grace. For our sake, he has made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Christianity is not something that we use so that we can get something better. In, in the past, that's what Christianity is. It's something that's been used to somehow keep society domesticated. And we can all have our way. That's why people can have the same morals but have a different Lord. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about gospel-centered. One of my favorite writers right now is a guy by the name of Russell Moore. Um, everybody knows him in terms of his Christian and religious convictions. He was actually speaking at a conference where a woman came up to him who was a lesbian. And she came up and she had a lot of very interesting questions about him. She had not met one of these um, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians before. And so she wanted to talk to him about sex. And she asked him, hey, I just, I want to know. I mean, I'm just amazed. I've heard what you people believe. Um, I just want to touch you and see that you're real. She was genuinely interested. She said, so I just want to know, like, tell me what you believe about, like, sex before marriage. And Dr. Moore began to kind of explain, well, here's what Christians believe. It's not always what we practice, which that would be another sermon, but it definitely is what Christians believe. That Yeah, we wait until married. We believe in sex between one man and one woman for life. That's what we believe. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know anybody believed that anymore. And so you don't believe, like I'm a lesbian, and you don't believe that that's okay, and I have friends who are, who are homosexual, and you don't know I don't. I don't think that's God's design. I don't think. And she's like, wow. 
I didn't know you people were still around. That is, a, and she's genuinely, he wasn't offended by her. He was found, and he's kind of getting lost in all of this. And she said, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. She said, if I were to date a guy for, say, three to four weeks and we wouldn't have sex, I wouldn't conclude that maybe he had some kind of religious conviction. I would probably believe that he had some kind of psychological disorder. I would actually believe that he had some kind of abuse or trauma in his life to go three or four weeks and not have sex? That is not normal in our culture. And he's going, that's probably true, actually. Maybe I'm the one that's not normal. And then he said to her, I love this. He said to her, but let me tell you, if you think it's crazy that I actually believe that God made men to marry women and women to marry men, if you think it's crazy that I actually believe that the Bible teaches that what we should do is wait until marriage and even within marriage that we don't get involved with other people in the pornography, if you think all of that is crazy, let me tell you something else. I actually believe that there was this guy who was born of a virgin and came to earth and they killed him and he died and then he came back to life and then he went to heaven and in some time in the future, he's going to come back on a horse. <laughs> Isn't that a good reminder? See, the world is fascinated at what we might believe or what we might practice ethically. But what we want people to realize is that amazing story of a Savior who died for them and who one day is coming back. The horse thing we can talk about when we study Revelation. 